house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. His name was Byron, but you called him Myron. Three times you called him Myron. Till you heard the other guy say it with a B. Byron, 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 Byron. What does it matter if you look him in the eye? Say it with confidence and look him in the eye. Don't look at your shoes. Don't look at the sky. Say it with confidence and look him in the eye. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast manifesting its relationship problems through a game of Candyland. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my parenthetically not new, but always selected, Joe Reed. Hello, Chris. Hi. This podcast I, is going to be a hard R. Uh, <laughs> I love that line reading so much. She has so, like, not to, like, get us right off the bat on probably what will be our most fervently held opinion, but, like, Elizabeth Marvel has so many fantastic line readings in this movie. It's just, it's phenomenal. Should have been on everybody's supporting actress ballot. Yeah. Was definitely on mine. She's so good. I th- here's the thing, like... But I, I know that we are both in very um, staunch agreement about this movie. Rewatching it again, I think this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen this movie. This, it is Noah Baumbach's best screenplay. In that, like, this is my fifth time watching it, and there was a, a ton of lines that I had never caught before that had me off my ass laughing. Oh, it's incredibly funny. And in that very, like, Noah Baumbach way, where it's all very, like, dependent on these small moments of timing, or um, him sort of, like, trusting his cast to, like, have the exact right reaction shot. Like, it's all, like, it's a fantastic screenplay, yes, but it's also, like, really well-directed comedy, mm-hmm. in that, like, a lot of the laughs are really about just, like, timing and 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 visual and that kind of thing and a good 50 percent of the jokes in this movie are completely thrown away yes and like you won't even catch them until you've watched the movie again and they don't even feel necessarily like jokes because they don't feel like punchlines. but like it's just like it's uh it's danny being like the mise-en-scene in your movie was really great too gene like that kind of thing <laughs> about just it's, it's all these like small little I don't know, just really like lived in moments of just it t- takes you a second to register that it was this really funny moment. But oh, my God, it's every single time 
um, what a, a different character will do the you should see the other dog joke. And every single time, <laughs> it just gets funnier because of how much like more expectation they have that it's going to be this funny joke and it just never lands. It's so funny. I think also on top of like this is a movie that gets funnier and funnier when you watch it. I think the emotional like well of this movie gets richer and richer each time that I watch it and I'm I'm yeah. more and more moved. Um, we'll we'll definitely rewatch. get into we'll definitely get into my sort of grand theory of Noah Baumbach because like mm-hmm. the the more movies he makes the more sort of like I like just add another layer outer layer to my grand sculpture of just sort of my take on Noah Baumbach which is probably halfway bullshit but whatever like it's mine and I enjoy it. <laughs> um yeah, it's a very um it's the kind of movie he couldn't have made until this very point in his career i think is basically mm. what i would say about it is that because it, it would have been too far pushed in one direction or another like it would have been too scabrous if it was earlier or too whimsical if it was earlier or like i would say maybe a little too um saccharine if it was post marriage story I, think I don't want to you... shit on Marriage Story this episode, but like this is the movie that I wish got the uh, level of respect and attention that Marriage Story got, which is a movie I like. I really love really Marriage Story. Like I, I feel like, but I feel like Meyerowitz Stories to me is a interesting, and, and I'm sort of interested that nobody else really seemed to have this take. Is that like it's a culmination of a lot of different angles and obsessions that Baumbach has had throughout his career. So many of his movies have some degree of autobiography or another to it. It he um he in his own life grew up in Park Slope. His parents were both writers. His mother was a film critic, I believe, or some uh some sort of critic for the village voice. And his father was a uh a writer and a professor and this whole kind of thing. So like uh, and then, of course, his parents' divorce was famously the inspiration for The Squid and the Whale. And then, sort of throughout his career, kicking and screaming, there's a lot of sort of like postgraduate uh, ennui that seems to have a lot of um, sort of lived in observations and experience from him. And then, as his career goes along, and then the. Um, the Greta Gerwig collaborations happen. And I genuinely do feel like those movies bring a um, generosity and I don't want to say a softness to him, but kind of a, um, a more sort of, Gen- I mean, generous is the word I'm just going to go with. Like generous view towards his characters that like a movie like Margot at the Wedding feels so sharp and acidic and not necessarily bad because that's a you know that's a very good movie but i think yeah it's a hostile movie about hostile people margaret the wedding is hostile greenberg is hostile there's a lot of the squid in the whale that is hostile like those are very uh tart (laughs) movies Mm -hmm. and i think the collaborations with greta gerwig there is a more sort of compassionate uh humanist feel to those movies that i think absolutely manifests itself in the myrod stories i think of that the Maureen character, who is, you know, portrayed as, you know, she's she's a drunk, she's not really trustworthy in terms of, 
you know, the kids really don't trust that she has the best interests of their father at heart, like this whole kind of thing. She's very much sort of a consummate outsider in the family. But like this movie definitely has moments of real compassion for her and it doesn't hang her out to dry in a way that I feel like maybe mm-hmm. earlier Noah Baumbach movies would have, or at least would have like made her more of a contemptible character or more of the butt of a joke. Yeah, and- I feel like the final note with that character specifically is a surprising one because it's after Ben Stiller's character uh, reverts the plan to sell off all the father's art. And she's like, oh, well, I guess I was surprised by your decision, but it's fine. And like previously you thought that she was just being so... um Greedy, selfish, right, right, right. Yeah, Yeah, selfish and only seeing it from her part. But really what you kind of learn from her is that she's like easily swayed if you give her the tiniest bit of pushback, you know, and it's not a big deal. There's also the moment before that where she's talking to Matthew, talking to the Ben Stiller character about Danny and Jean and about how, you know, there's such disappointments. And she sort of takes a beat and she says, I say this as a disappointment myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's there's just like there's a roundness to that character that I don't think, you know, isn't isn't required, but I'm very, very happy that it is because that's it's my most uh kind of cherished thing about a movie is when it can be very generous to its, you know, nominal antagonists. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really love this movie, and I'm glad we're going to get to talk about it. It's obviously one of the more recent movies we've talked about, and as a result, we haven't really had a ton of chance to talk about Netflix, so that'll be also an interesting thing Mm -hmm. to get into. Especially, I think, to talk about Bombback and Netflix is really interesting in relation to ship to this movie. Yep, yep, totally. It's, It's very much... The Netflix evolution is very like this is comes at a very interesting point in the Netflix evolution because it's sort of a um it's the dip before the rise kind of that uh that and obviously I was at the time working for a publication that was very very much focused on streaming platforms so I re- I was sort of like right in the thick of uh Netflix this year and it was it was interesting sort of like tracking it tracking it along but we'll definitely talk about that for sure mm-hmm. yeah the meyerowitz stories new and selected new and selected it's so funny when you did our little uh, twitter tease for this and uh it was a rack of uh books aka stories that were new uh new arrivals i for a second i was just like what does that have to do and then you reminded me that duh new, new and selected which new and is selected like, Obviously, we shorthand it with just the Meyerowitz stories, but I also think, because at least at this point, no one's guessed it, um, I also just think it speaks to like what my particular soapbox will be about this movie, is that I don't think people saw it. I don't think people no. watched this movie, um, which is interesting that it is also a Netflix movie, and Netflix is, you know, ubiquitous. Every movie that we have has been watched by 42 million people, which right. I don't think they touted out for this movie um they didn't do weirdly they did uh, here's the thing we'll get into the can of it all we'll get like all of that but like uh, my axe grind about this movie is that people haven't seen it it is one of those netflix movies that got caught adjacent to another netflix movie that they wanted to push even more which in this case Mm -hmm. 
2017, they had sort of, they were still kind of licking their wounds from the Beasts of No Nation thing. And 2017. Maybe we could do an episode on, but it, it, it's going to be more of a, a bummer than this one would be. So we yes. kind of jumped on this one first. Right, for sure. Um, even though the fact that they brought both Okja and Myrith stories to Cannes, which we'll talk about for sure, because that was a whole fucking tempest in a teapot there. Mm-hmm. But late 2017. Netflix was really focused on the idea that they could have a blockbuster, and so they were really pushing that movie Bright really hard. And I remember that being, like, the thing for them, where they weren't really... They had sort of given up the ghost on Oscar for the year, and which would really rebound the next year, obviously, with Roma. Mm-hmm. But, and probably their bit, one of their... Um, uh, maybe this and, like, Meyerowitz got about the same effort but first i killed my father the first they killed my father the angelina jolie movie um but ultimately that doesn't get a whole ton of push either i think they had sort of like dipped their toes into a few like possible you know critical faves i think they maybe tested the you know put their finger up to the wind on that one saw that it wasn't really a, a an enthusiastic charge from the critics for any of those and so they really seemed to from my experience put all of their eggs into the basket of trying to make bright a you know full-on big budget blockbuster that netflix is going to be able to do the big you know bombastic movie thing that all the studios are going to be able to do mm-hmm. and that ultimately i mean they'll tell you that was a success they will tell you that everybody was watching bright that that december and whatever and but like culturally bright did not make an impression certainly not even the kind of impression that they would get the next year with bird box which yeah bird box has definitely had a more enduring thing but i think some of that has to do with like bright was like critically loathed and even from just like the average netflix consumer like what you see is not people who were like that was a good movie you know it was just everybody watched it well right but and and also like by that token there are a lot of summer blockbusters that are critically loathed that still become sort of sticky in the cultural consciousness and bright did not do that like there's like you you know you won't hear people you know talking about bright today like the way they even will mm-hmm. like transformers or like the dumbest michael bay movies or you know whatever um bad boys 3 like anything like that no it's just it's been largely forgotten except for to sort of like speak about derisively in terms of you know netflix missing the boat but yeah ultimately like and we can get into this like i don't know if the Meyerowitz story is not catching on like it might have been, you know, in early predictions. I don't know if that's a failure on Netflix's part. I think it's po- quite possibly more a failure on the critics' part because, like, critics let yeah. this movie kind of go away. And they were, like, for this to make a success with Oscar, critics would have had to have given this more attention and championed it more critics? on the level that they did with Marriage Story. Critics, I I remember being sort of frustrated that more critics didn't love it, though. Like, I think a lot of critics really liked it. I think you'll you'll see that in the disparity between the Rotten Tomatoes score and the Metacritic score. Not that either one of those is, like, you know, definitional. Bad. But um, I think a lot of people sort of, like, gave it a thumbs up but weren't enthusiastic about it. And 
I was sort of frustrated that more people weren't like over the moon about it like I was because I just like fell in love when I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think there were a lot of people sort of, I think also coming off of the two collaborations with Greta Gerwig, which like we forget, like Mistress America had its detractors too. Like there, there, you know, were at least a good handful of people who found Mistress America too self indulgent or it took abrasive. me a second watch to like Mistress America. Now it's one of my favorite movies. It's so fantastic. Um, but I think a lot of people after he made the Greta Gerwig movies and then went back to making this on his own kind of were sort of, in my mind, kind of nitpicking the Noah Baumbach myopia, sort of, the sort of like Mm -hmm. very narrow, uh, lane to which he casts his expertise, which like, I get it, but also like, what what are we what are you going to Noah Baumbach movies for? Like he makes a you know a movie within a very sort of specific kind of sphere, but I think he does so in a way that gets to more universal observations about family and about um like you don't have to have grown up in a sort of hyper intellectual artistic upper west side townhouse kind of a family to get what to get to the truths, to recognize the truths that he's getting at to in the scenes where, for example, it's the adult siblings in the hospital trying to deal with the, you know, what the doctors are all telling them about their father or to deal with, you know, the way that, you know, siblings in a family of divorce of multiple divorces might have very sort of like, awkward to hostile relationships highly with each other. relatable <laughs> like he just he's just very very good at that kind of thing and i don't and i feel like if your main criticism of noah Baumbach is that he only makes movies about park slope artsy fartsy people mm-hmm. that like you're 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 missing what i would say is the best part of what his movies are i mean as someone who's like all of their siblings do not share the exact uh, same parents as I do. Like, I don't know if I've seen another movie kind of articulate the, like, odd ways that kind of manifests in, in how you navigate your adult relationship with those siblings. I've never really seen that articulated, certainly as well as this movie does. Just the little things of, like... Danny feeling a certain kind of way that Matthew and his daughter like communicate over email and he doesn't or over text and he doesn't really know about it or the way that going back to like Elizabeth Marvel's perfect line readings in this movie at one point she just sort of they're in the hospital and she just sort of turns to Ben Stiller and she goes it's really nice to see you Matthew in this very kind of hopeful but slightly stilted way where there's still Mm -hmm. a little bit of like weird there's a wall between them or even not even just past tensions but past like estrangements where it's Mm -hmm. just like you can tell that gene really likes matthew she has nothing against matthew it's just that the circumstances of their lives have kept them at an arm's length through no fault of either one of them it's really Mm -hmm. really interesting oh i love it all right I'm excited anyway, to let's get in. into the 60-second plot description, and we can keep talking more about this movie that we like, and we can talk about Oscar, we can talk about Can, blah, 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 all of it. Yes. We are here to talk about The Meyerowitz Stories, new and selected, directed and written by Noah Baumbach, starring Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, Dustin Hoffman, Emma Thompson, Elizabeth Marvell, Grace Van Patten, Judge Hearst, and as herself, 
Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. Put a pin in that. I definitely, at the other end we of the will... plot description, I want to mention Sigourney Weaver. She she enters the movie saying, hi, I'm Sigourney. She sure um, does. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, uh, my epitaph. Um, <laughs> 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 we'll get into it. Plus, the movie stars, like, all of the Bombac bit players. I'm yes. pretty sure the entire ensemble that is not the two leads of Mistress America shows up in this movie. To the point where my beloved Karen from Mistress America is like one of the nurses who like doesn't even speak. Like she's it's in my that major one... qualm with this movie. Let her speak. She should have had a speaking role. She's uh, incredible. I love her. Um, yeah. A non bearded Michael Chernus. Yes. Like He's always adorable. I love yep. Michael Chernus. Also, um, once again, it took me forever to recognize Mickey Sumner in this movie, where the first time I saw it, I was like, who was the blonde who was making eyes with Ben Stiller at Bard? And it's just like, oh, right. It's Sophie from Francis Ha. It's Mickey Sumner. It's, you know, Adam Sandler's, like, key potential love interest in this movie is Rebecca Miller. Rebecca Miller. Yep, exactly. Um, Gail Rankin, so perfect on glow and in her smell. Yep. Is like the nurse who they have the one good day with and then Pam. she gets reassigned and they Beloved Pam. On. God, Pam's so great um, in this movie. That is incredibly relatable. Sakina um, Joffrey as uh the doctor who's yeah. going on vacation for three weeks, which what a fantastic scene that is. Amazing. Uh, but the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected, premiered in competition at Cannes. We will get into it. Uh, it also played New York Film Festival and then debuted on Netflix October 13th of 2017. I, first you, Netflix movie. We yes. Get into the Netflix of it. I, 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 I've re- observed as we, you know, do these podcast episodes, uh, over the weeks and weeks that if we ever do merch, which I don't know if we're ever going to do merch, but if we ever do, I feel like we should have a t-shirt that just says we'll get into it because I feel like that's sort of, we're always sort of, uh, promising that, you know, don't worry all these things that we're touching on in the great. I get really paranoid that we'll forget to get into Me too. it. Me too. People will yell at us that we didn't get into Me it. Me too. You promised to get into it. If we ever promise to get into it and we don't get into it. Yell at us on Twitter about not getting into it, and we, we want to get into it. We'll get it. into it there. We'll do, we we'll intend. Do it. We'll do it. We'll get into maybe it. we'll do a bonus episode something. Um, <laughs> but Joseph, yes, you are tasked this week with a sixty-second plot description of the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected. Please put all of your adjectives in parenthetical while doing this. It's a lot of adjectives. I will say that I will probably get tripped up, as is my want, but we'll see. What uh what uh two parenthetical adjectives would you describe yourself as? Oh god. Are you new? Are you selected? <laughs> I am neither new or selected at this point. I would say um I'm neither new, fresh, r- ripe, um I am uh, I am um uh, uh tired and anxious. <laughs> oh, okay. That's that's a good one. I could also be tired and anxious. I'm usually like hungry and whatever. Chris File, parenthetical, hungry, hungry and whatever. whatever. I love it. Uh, hungry and undercaffeinated. Yeah, uh, right. Joseph, yes. we, we've stalled too long. Uh, are you ready for the 60-second plot description? Sure, we'll see how far I get before I get cut off. All right, if you are ready, your 60-second uh, plot description for the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected, starts 
now. All right, Danny Meyerowitz is a recently divorced father of 18-year-old Eliza, who's heading off to college to f- study filmmaking. Danny's at odds and ends, so he goes to live with his father, Harold, a sculptor who was never the success he thought he should have been, and who's constantly judging the artistic and intellectual merit of his peers and family. Harold's third wife, Maureen, is usually drunk and wants to sell their Upper West Side townhouse to go live in the Berkshires. There's also Danny's sister, Jean, who is quiet and awesome. Their brother, Matthew, from Harold's second marriage, lives in California and is a financier, the family's only real success. Harold neglected Danny and Jean in their childhood, leading to many lingering resentments and awkwardness within the family, which are exacerbated when Harold has a long-delayed reaction to a fall and is hospitalized and comatose with a brain bleed. His kids have to deal with the hospital nightmare together, leading eventually to Danny and Matthew brawling on the grounds of Bard College, and Jean telling them about being sexually menaced as a child by one of Harold's friends. They beat down his car, and it's very cathartic and awesome. In the end, Harold survives, and he goes to live in the Berkshires with Maureen, and Danny Danny finally stands up to him and smashes a plate of cookies and goes to... uh, goes to California to live with Matthew for a little bit and try his life. I made it. Yeah, you pretty much made it. I I didn't get into Eliza's film career. Yeah. But, you know, Gene gets a haircut. It's not necessarily about, like, what happens. It's kind of the process the characters go through together and separately. Exactly. It's a wonderful film. Yeah, so (laughs) um, when we did our uh, last Meryl Streep episode, which was um, Prime Prime a few weeks ago, I mentioned that Meryl Streep had entered our prestigious Six Timers Club, which we have decided at that moment is going to be a thing now. So um, recently, as of our episode last week, Alice and Janney entered our Five Timers Club, which is sort of our holding room. It's not really a club. It's just a little waiting yeah. room on yeah. the way to six. So she, Alice and Janney requested approval to enter the Zoom room. Right. So Alice and Janney is on the cusp at this point. And we will let her in the Zoom room the next time she's in a movie. <laughs> exactly. With this movie, Sigourney Weaver uh, bumps up her tally to five now. So we are at uh, critical watch stage for Sigourney Weaver. The next time we do a Sigourney movie, she will be a six timer. We have done previously. Can you mention? Can you think of them off the top of your head, Chris? What are our other Sigourns? Sigourney has been in the Ice Storm. Yes. Oh boy, I have a feeling some of these are older that we've done. Yeah, she was in our sixth episode, our 21st. Oh, 1492, Conquest for Paradise. Yes, very good. Um, Conquest of Paradise, I believe. God damn it. I'll never remember. <laughs> um, it was I'm in 1492. Sure. How could, It's a long time ago. It's fine. We should have made that a joke during that episode, but it was early and we like hadn't established our humor. <laughs> um, it could have been conquest the paradise, conquest right. and paradise, right? Conquest, different different um, prepositions the whole way. Yes, conquest, conquest about paradise, comma paradise. a paradise. <laughs> uh, okay, fourteen ninety two ice storm. This. So I only have two more movies to guess. Correct. Uh listeners are probably screaming. Um. I don't know if either one of these two are like our most memorable, but we'll see. Our twenty-first mm. episode and our eighty-fifth episode, if that helps. Twenty-first. Wow. So that's further back. Wow. With that, mm. one very low budget, one very high budget. <laughs> well, we haven't done imaginary heroes. Imaginary heroes no, will be when we, could. <laughs> we have to, you know. Yes. Um, Wait, was the 21st uh, Tadpole? Yes, Tadpole. Tadpole. Our great digital video monstrosity Tadpole. 
Yeah, yeah, the very um, aesthetically uh, appealing uh, yes. tadpole. Uh, okay, so there's one more. That episode, we also spent more time talking about BB Newworth. So we definitely did get the one you're missing. I can't get this. The one you're missing is from the same director as one of the other four. Oh, it's another Ridley Scott movie, probably. Yes. Duh! It is uh, Exodus and Kings. It's yes, it's Exodus Exodus and Kings. Gods and Kings. Yes. Exodus Exodus and Genesis. Kings. (laughs) <laughs> Exodus and Genesis save the world. Yes. Um yeah. yes. The so, day yeah. after tomorrow, colon Moses. Right. Sigourney Weaver in her incredibly rich and rewarding role in Exodus Gods and Kings. Like truly Where she looks askance four times and that's her, you know, part of She also movie. does that's also her role in 1492. So clearly like Sigourney seems to feel like she owes Ridley Scott something for Alien, and I'm just here to tell her, uh, lady, you had you do not, you no Actually, longer owe him. I mean, a we thing. maybe owe Sigourney Weaver an apology because with the ice storm excluded, yeah. this is probably the most we've talked about her because she just shows up this movie iconically and says, "Hi, I'm Sigourney." Hi, I'm Sigourney, and then like, and then Harold dines out on that little greeting like at least yeah, twice. And that's to Sigourney his other Weaver. She said, hi, hi, I'm Sigourney. I said, hi, I'm Harold. I will, all right. <laughs> Let's get the Dustin Hoffman out of the way early because I know. Part of Dust- the reason why this movie was buried is uh, accusations against him came out in the year of this movie. Around the same right? time. Or was it the year before? Uh, I feel like, I think a, it's sort of the timeline of it is a little murky to me. I know there was that Meryl Streep story. About, yeah, because he's always been uh, a bastard and he's always been a bad guy, especially when you hear the stories about Kramer versus Kramer and how he treated Meryl Streep on that set for, right. you know, the sake of acting and right. Right. method. But he was sort of this person that we had sort of made our peace with being, you know, mm-hmm. an asshole, but a very good actor, which I do think, it is, you know, remains true. I think since then and since... I think it was right around this time. But I also feel like this movie was already kind of out of the conversation by then anyway. So it's not like Dustin Hoffman was like barreling his way towards a supporting actor nomination and then that all like happened. I feel like part of the sort of ongoing unfolding sort of Me Too wave were these stories about accusations against Dustin Hoffman for I don't know the specifics so i'm not going to delve into it i don't want to you know be inaccurate about that but there was some you know some bad stuff thrown his way so yeah um we don't want to sort of you know revere him but like you got to talk about him and frankly he's fantastic in this movie like is the thing his performance is incredibly fantastic in this movie it's uh, yes yes that is true but specifically him i think he gets to this um this moment with Harold where you get exactly the kind of like petty sort of like he lives his life one um petty grievance at a time kind of a thing. And he's sort of like f- just eternally 
kind of mumbling and kind of sort of going over these little, I said in my 60 second, he's sort of always evaluating and judging the artistic and intellectual merits of like everything, everything they talk about. It's, you know, such and such has, you know, uh, you know, a talent, but no real insight and all these kind of like very sort of like critical evaluations of like his granddaughter or what Matthew does in his career as a financier or what Mm -hmm. Danny could have been as a musician and yada, yada. And it's all very, um, Every little bit of it is another little piece of the puzzle of, like, what he must have been like as a father in terms of, you know, working and on even his... despite, like, the casualness of the delivery, like, everything he seems to say is, like, fatal. Like, uh, right. it's non-recoverable, it, like, is definitive. Uh, and it know. reveals also, like, his own deficiencies, too. It also reveals how kind of... um uh, the the inferiority complex he's sort of like constantly living in all the time and yet also it's also these like very little funny moments where he'll just you know mention the, like you know we got the good cable package we got you know we can watch the Mets or whatever and um just the way he's, he tries to change the subject from things or the ways he'll like sort of you know toss off something about like what Maureen did earlier in that day and it's you can get the frustration of trying to you know, if you're Danny trying to sort of reckon with this neglectful, emotionally sort of scarring childhood, when this father won't have any conversation that doesn't immediately stray into either ephemera or, you know, him talking about how LJ at Bard is, you know, got a retrospective and he didn't or something like that. And this is why I'm not having children. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the impact I fear giving someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's a movie that that um, sort of, again, it's building blocks. It, it adds a little bit of information here or there. And by the end, you get this really sort of rich portrait of these children who were either... Ex- explicitly neglected by Harold, which we, you know, that's Danny and Jean, or like Matthew got his father's attentions, but doesn't seem all the better for it, you know? Right, because, it, well, I mean, he basically says it explicitly to them. It's like, you got ignored and you had to deal with that and seeking a certain approval that way, but because I wasn't a- ignored, I got more direct impact and damage. <laughs> right, right. And then you get the scene with Candace Bergen, who plays Ben Stiller's mother in the film, and you get a little bit more of, like, what that relationship was. And then she has this moment where she kind of apologizes to Harold, but really it's an apology that she wants to send to Danny and Jean for Mm -hmm. not being a good stepmother to them and sort of for... uh, participating in that having hesitancy about if it was her place or not right she was still yeah they were still at odds and ends with danny and jean's mother and that obviously divorce seems to have gone very acrimoniously and but you get these moments where you know when jean ultimately tells her story about what happened to her when she visited her father at martha's vineyard and sort of being um peeped upon and then and then um that friend of Harold's was, you know, like jerking off in front of her or whatever, which is 
you know, horribly dramatic story that mm-hmm. she tells very matter-of-factly. And but part of that is she didn't want to tell Matthew's mother because she thought Matthew's mother would be mad at her because of that sort of the relationship that they had. And when we see Candace Bergen in the present timeline, she seems like a wonderfully, you know, nice and sweet and, you know, regular person. And she feels this, you know, genuine regret. And so it's all, again, this very sort of humane treatment of these characters where, like, it doesn't hold back from saying Harold was and is a shit father. And yet, all of these little pieces of this family feel very much like nobody's like Candace Bergen wasn't a wicked stepmother. She was just somebody who was dealing with a, you know, complicated emotional terrain herself. Possibly also following the lead of her right. husband who was a shitty father. Right. And so all of these things sort of like build and, find, you know, you get that moment with Gene when they're in the car after, uh, Danny and Matthew have beat the shit out of this guy's car for some sort of catharsis. And they're like, Gene, isn't it great? And she's just like, no matter, no amount of damage you do to that car is going to unfuck up my life. And she again says it incredibly matter of factly. Like, Gene never really has this like big emotional, you know, blowout, even though she obviously could. Um, But you see that like all these different like little, you know, moments and building blocks in this family's life have put these three adult children in these very you know peculiar and interesting places in their lives where you know and you could with a broad brush sort of call them all in some way or another failures or you mm -hmm. know messes and i think a lesser movie specifically with the gene character a lesser movie would kind of lump her damage together with Danny's and like never really show like never have that moments where like she does actually get to take control of the story and you do get to hear like what happened to her in childhood and you get to hear her say you dumb idiots will never understand what it's like to be me right in this family right that she and Danny right she and Danny are under the same umbrella of neglect from Harold and yet Mm -hmm. their experiences are all very individual and very like specific and the other thing though is speaking sticking with the Gene character but I think it applies to most of the characters in this movie is Gene's not a pitiable character. There are bad things that happen to Gene, and you sort of wish that things were better for Gene. But, like, she is funny. She's incredibly sweet. She has, like, a great relationship with Danny and with Eliza and with, you know, even, on you know, as stilted as it is with Matthew. And she, you know... She has seems to have fun with her coworkers at uh, at the office, and she is in you know by the end of this movie she's in uh, these student films that Eliza is making, and she's you know doing the best that she can, and it's not like mm-hmm. you know that I love that I love that she's, she's probably the most well balanced of all of these people and the one who's actually like processed and dealt with her shit. Yeah, but the movie um, doesn't equate that with her being uninteresting. The way the movie introduces her is so funny to me, where Danny's, there's this whole hullabaloo, uh, first of all, Danny and Eliza trying to find a parking spot, and then up the stairs into the townhouse, 
where Harold's got eight billion things, you know, he fell with walking the dog, and Maureen's making shark for dinner, and this and this and that. And then finally, after like seven minutes of sort of this, you know, very active back and forth between all the characters, Danny sort of like enters the other room, and Jean's been sitting there in a chair up against the wall the whole time, just sort of very quiet <laughs> and silent. And it's just like, I knew that he'd want to say hello to you in his own time, so I waited. And it's just so funny in this like incredibly understated way it's uh you brought it up so we got to talk about the shark stew the shark stew (laughs) that has like clams and mussels in it that even though this is a stew and presumably was cooked on a pot on a stove they haven't opened it looks like rocks with some very like ugly meat in a broth. You can see the so bacteria funny. sort of like floating, <laughs> free floating in the thing. There's one point, it's a very small moment because they're in the middle of talking about a thing where Sandler takes a bite of it and then like immediately like rips the food out of his mouth before he can even like take it off of the fork. It's so like he just like the revulsion of it and all the scenes of like Eliza sort of like giving the whole bowl of it a side eye. It's. To an extent, everything about the Maureen character is the broadest thing that the movie really does. And, like, Emma Thompson is doing a bit. And I understand anybody's uh, perspective on this performance, whether they think she's terrible, whether she's too much, it's too broad, or if they think she's genius. But there's something about this, like, very self-absorbed, alcoholic, vaguely an artist, right. because she wears, like, a wooden bead necklace. Vaguely you bohemian. Know what she does. Yeah. Um, like, that woman that we all know who that woman is, we've experienced that woman, that it's like, you almost need someone who is playing very much not themselves and doing like this kind of sketchy bit to like get at the truth of who that person is like it it has to be almost a little not believable um for it to be accurate but at the same time i don't know it's it can be a little too broad for what the rest of the movie is doing there's a moment that i caught in this that i don't think i had caught before or I had possibly forgotten, although I can't imagine how I could have, where she's describing to Danny the people who came by looking to purchase um, the townhouse and also Harold's art. And she described the one as baby-faced yet sinewy, like an old lover of mine, Willem Dafoe. And she tosses this (laughs) off so... So quickly that, like, you totally almost miss it because, like, other things are going on. But it's just perfect it's kind of sums up you know her character that either she is an old lover of willem dafoe or she just says it even though Mm -hmm. it's maybe not true and like either one is equally plausible absolutely plausible that she could have either had an extended relationship with willem dafoe or like made out with him at a bar one time and now he is an old lover um in her mind also describing him as baby-faced gets sinewy is both correct and not correct at the same time and like (laughs) so good (laughs) Oh my god, what a great... Alright, I want to sort of shift for a second into Stiller and Sandler, who are two actors who, like, knowing us, like, we have our faves and we have our, you know, pet obsessions and our pet, you know, um, you know, things that we gravitate towards. And I would think it's safe to say that neither Ben Stiller nor Adam Sandler fall under those umbrellas for us. Yes, we can say that safely? Yes, but I think we can also safely say that this is, I'm going to guess, like, we're both going to be 
real fans of their work here. Yeah, I think they're both fantastic in this movie. I feel and like I- we brought this up in our Men, Women, and Children episode, but like this should be Sandler's Oscar nomination. Right? All, of- like, I, I, all the uncut gems stands out there. Like, I get yeah. it. I think he's great. He would have been on my ballot last year, but yeah. like this yeah. is his best performance. All of the he's enthusiasm amazing. that people had for Adam Sandler last year, I wish they had had for him in Meyerowitz Stories. I think he's mm-hmm. so much... It's such a... First of all, Bombeck really cleverly um, funnels both Sandler and Stiller and both of the fact the fact that both of those actors have a tendency in their movies to uh, towards uh, frustration and kind of blow ups. And he Explosion. really like he yeah. harnesses that from Sandler right away in that parking scene where they're trying to find a parking spot, but like also at other points in the movie and like Stiller is, you know, his frustration builds up in kind of a different way, but then he also has the big blow up at his father. And then later when the two of them are fighting on the lawn at Bard, um, I also think Bombach, though, with these two actors who are prone to, like, blow up for laughs in their other movies, Bombach, I think, has a really good sense of where the ceiling for that can be and have it still be really funny, really informative of the character and, like, a natural response this character would have to the situation. And it, um, and it that, doesn't... That, like, kind of harnesses what is good about those performers in a way that, like, I don't think every movie they're in does. And it never gets to the point where those moments obscure what's going on with those characters and, like, the very real kind of emotions that they're going through. Uh, um, I think Sandler gets across a real sadness like uh, mm-hmm. the kind of which like I, I you know punch drunk love is a really great performance for him too and it's been so long since i've seen it that i don't want to like make any statements about it definitively but like i don't even think in that movie gets to the kind of you know genuine sadness that his character has in this movie and that he doesn't know what to do with it like he clearly has resentments for his upbringing and he has these sort of moments where he gets really like worked up about them selling the townhouse even though he only ever lived in that townhouse for one year of his life um whereas that was where matthew had grown up and so he's not even sure why he's getting so upset about it and later you know matthew is trying to be like why aren't you more angry at dad why are you always the one who shows up for him matthew also asked that of gene in in the woods at that one point which i think is a great moment where he's just like why do you always show up for him and and i think sandler's performance has that kind of you know sad confusion Mm -hmm. of just like i don't even know why? Yeah, because it's a it's a misunderstanding of both of them because Danny is angry at their father and Elizabeth Marvell's the one who can Gene can answer it with like truly I'm just a decent person. That's what decent people do and like yeah. she believes that. Um and then Danny I also think sorry for but no, I was going to say for Sandler and because uh, you're talking about like the sadness that he he has that feels like, you know, real and developed in this movie that informs the movie i think the same is true for ben stiller it's weird like they're not actors that ever really move like genuinely move me and i think they're both like really moving in this movie there's a Um, moment in there as they're building up to their fight at bard where danny sort of um because it the fight starts 
when Danny gets, again, upset for reasons that I think he's not even sure about, when Grace won't listen to him about not drinking, you know, wine and beer in the afternoon, which is like a very sort of like parental thing to do. And and Matthew sort of like butts in and it's just like, she's 18, just let her do what she wants. And after he sort of blows up at, at Eliza and did I say Grace? Grace is the actress's name. It's Eliza. Yeah. Grace Van Patten. Um, after Danny sort of blows up at her and she goes away and he's arguing about it with Matt and he just says, I have a really good thing going with Eliza. I have a really good, what, you know, he's saying, I have a, I've, you know, this father daughter relationship we have is essentially the one success of his life. He's never had a real job. He's never had a career. He was a stay at home dad. And the one real success of his life is he's raised this really great daughter and they have a really great close relationship to each other. And he's so, he gets so frustrated that Matthew, sort of, you know, butts in on that. And he wants at least somebody to give him credit for that, I think. And he's and and um it's again such a like a plaintive moment for him, but like it's uh it's articulated really well in the script and in the performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. He's so good. I also think there's something about Sandler's performance in this movie and like the same isn't true for Ben Stiller, and like that's desi- in the design of the script. But like, there is something about Adam Sandler's presence in this movie that's very warm. That like is a necessary element to this movie. Like we were talking about, like yeah. where it hits Bombach in his career, where it's like all of the notes of his movies seem to be coming together in a really uh, rich way. And I think some of the like warmth of this movie that feels genuine and not overforced uh, comes from Sandler's performance. There are moments where, um, like, uh, the famous blueberry pancakes, and then he does the little, like, <laughs> Al Jolson hand motion or whatever, um, and where you can tell, it's, again, it's the small little moment that communicates a lot, that clearly, for a character who doesn't have a whole lot of great childhood memories of his father that like clearly this seems to be like a thing that they had where like Harold would make the famous blueberry pancakes and they'd like make a thing of it and I think that's also present in the Myron Byron scene right where Mm -hmm. um, Sandler who you find out through this movie had a musical talent that he ultimately um, chose not to pursue partially because you get the sense partially because almost as in defiance of his father and who clearly like wanted all of his children to pursue careers in, in arts and things like that. Um, but you get these couple scenes where he's playing piano and the one, the first one comes very early on in the movie is he and Eliza have this duet on this beautiful little song called Genius mm-hmm. Girl.
that like Amazing. not only is it like a really pretty slash like bittersweet song especially in the context of that he's now divorced from her mom and a lot of you know the the crux of the song is mommy and daddy and genius girl make three but also that he and eliza harmonize in the you know in the performance and clearly like you get Again, just it communicates the years and years that they have had this as one of the things that like bond them together. That like they've done this so many times, they've gotten the harmony sort of like down pat, and it communicates a ton about their relationship in this very sweet um, and like just a huge sense of history. Yeah. I think it does in just that one scene in really graceful, unforced ways. Um, a lot of things that Marriage Story is trying to do. Um, and is just like not as impactful for me as a viewer because it feels so uh, labored sometimes. I can and like see that. he does all of that in a single scene. I can see that. I, you know, again, I think Marriage Story fundamentally worked a little bit better for me than for you. But elements of it worked very, very well for me. Yeah. But I see like it. I can't get all the way there the way other people are. But the the genius girl scene, and then as I was saying, sort of Myron Byron communicates the same kind of thing, but about um, his relationship with Harold, where it's a very funny little ditty about how his father is such a fucking narcissist that he didn't even get the name of this person right, like, the first several mm-hmm. times he referred to him. He kept calling him Myron, and his name was really Byron. And um, and then Danny sort of, like, made this funny song about it. But again, the two of them sort of sing it together with Harold totally unabashed that it's the song about, you know, what a jerk he is. And... Um, it's, and, and then again, it gets reprised later when Harold's in a coma and the three siblings are at home and then they are also sort of like singing it together and like this very kind of harmonious thing. And then Elizabeth Marvel has the big sort of like uh, note at the jazz end. Jazz hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she does the jazz hands. And it's it communicates a ton about what this family is like, that like in their best moments, they really... Um, you know, it's really something special between them. And in a small way, Myron Byron was keeping the movie somewhat in the Oscar race because it made the original song uh, Bake Off list. It did. So let's talk Genius about that. Genius Girl stupidly did not. I love both of those songs, and I think in a perfect world, either one of them would have made a great Oscar nomination. I think Genius Girl is probably the better of the two and certainly the more emotionally resonant of the two which makes it kind of bizarre like myron byron made in the so trailer. much more sense to watch on an oscar telecast right well and also just like it makes more sense if you're trying to like lure in voters who don't know anything about the movie and are maybe only watching the the clip of it with the song or maybe even only listening to it that like it's clearly the more emotionally resonant song which generally is the thing that works with oscar voters mm-hmm. and they generally don't go for um like was it this was this the same year as hell caesar hmm? was hell caesar 2017 uh I think so. Because like, but, all f- uh, no dames was not on the right. Off. But uh, um, right. And I think I remember that also so it wasn't being eligible. Like, but like, Oscar voters should go for something like no dames. But it's more of a comedy song, and so and those ones have a harder time 
kind of making it past the voters. And it's just, it's puzzling why they would, I, I don't, I mean, obviously, I don't think Genius Girl makes it either, but it's weird that it's, uh, that they wouldn't have gone for that instead of Myron Byron. I think in a perfect world, Genius Girl is the nominee that year. And because you look mm-hmm. at, all right, let's look at the nominees that year. Not a terrible year, but not a great year. It's a real mixed bag, right? Where I did not make friends this year because, like, I love this category so much. And, like, uh, what people were happy about, I, w- I was just, like, I was not making friends. <laughs> All right, let's go through song by song. Okay, the winner that year is Remember Me from the Pixar film Coco. It was the Amazing. second uh, original song win for Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, who had done Let It Go for Frozen. Thoughts Absolutely on Remember deserving Me. deserving winner. It's a wonderful winner. It's a very Incredible. wonderful winner. I really would not have been my number one vote that year, but probably would have been my number two. It's um, a lovely song. I, I've been re-watching the Pixar movies lately, and Coco is either next or uh, within the next couple that I'm watching, and I'm eager to re-experience it. Um, a wonderful song. Okay, next one. From the movie Mudbound. Uh, music and lyrics by Mary J. Blige, Raphael Sadiq, and Tara Stinson. It is Mighty River. Thoughts on Mighty River? We love Mary J. Blige. Let's keep the double song and acting nominations rolling, guys. Let's let's let it be a trend that does not die. Oh, but it's such a bad song, Chris. And it was fine. It's fine. I mean. <sighs> Listen, I'm not going to uh, shit on any other previous uh, terrible nominees or winners that were written by Sam Smith um, on this (laughs) podcast. Uh, But, like, I'm sorry. When Sam Smith wins for being, uh, like, a a sobbing baby in the night, um, I I can't complain about... Wait, uh, okay, but if that's the standard, then we can't complain about anything. Like, I have to feel like at some point we have to set Sam Smith aside and and decide that we okay, have standards fine. again. Mighty River is probably my my fifth place, even though there's other songs that I'm just like, throw my hands up and be like, I don't get it. Like, I have more ire for a, another one of these Okay, companies. I know. We're going to get to it and we're going to fight about it. It's going to be fun. Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name, Sufjan Stevens. Uh, Sufjan Stevens. Are you... Do you have your boxing gloves on because the fight starts now? <laughs> Oh, so you are hardcore, uh, is it a video over uh, Mystery of Love? Uh, no, I'm neither. Oh, you are We've this kind this of insane. have had this fight. I've, I've had this fight with other people. Not with me. You don't like either <sighs> of the songs, guys. No, they're bad. Oh, I don't think they're bad. I don't oh, think they're bad God. at all. I think they're quite they're good. bad. Even within the context, okay, you like Call Me By Your Name, though, right? Sure. <laughs> I love Guadagnino. I love his movies. Like, so you think the has... music in the films, both the Mystery of Love scene where they have the montage of them in the hills being, you know, European, and then the end scene where he's having an emotional moment to... If you're... Uh... That's not about that song. I don't like that song. Um should visions of is visions of Gideon the more deserving nominee than Mystery of Love? Yes. See, I disagree. I think Mystery of Love is a little better. God. I think as used in the film, Visions of Gideon is uh is the one is better deployed. I think it creates a more indelible moment. But as a song, I would listen to Mystery of Love first. Apologies to anyone 
that I'm offending with this, but Sufjan Stevens is just whale music to me. Um, <laughs> How dare like you? Um, just for it just this, lost all of our gay listeners. Just I'm for sorry. this, he's never going to write an Ohio uh, album. He's going to skip that state when he finally makes all of his other state uh, albums. Okay, next one. My pick. Bad music about Ohio. My pick for the worst in the category comes from my beloved Diane Warren. You know I love Diane Warren. I don't think this would have been a bad winner. We could finally get the Diane Warren win out of the way. It also would have been shared with Common. Like, I love Andra Day. I mean, we all love it. It's like Day. a cheesy ballad, but like, whatever. It could be worse. It could be, you know. So you're saying that this is Sam Smith. um significantly better than the RBG song that Jennifer Hudson did, also written by Diane Warren. I mean, that prob- this w- it would have been a better winner than that song, yeah. Well, sure, but again, low bar, low bar. Um, I made the discovery this week, I had the epiphany this week, that even though what I always say is that Diane Warren should have won her Oscar for Because You Loved Me from Up Close and Personal, because it was such a sort of signature hit song that year in pop music, and adult contemporary music probably more specifically, but... Looking at, like, she lost to Madonna, You Must Love Me from Evita. Not a great song, yada, yada, yada. Should have been that thing you do. Yes, I agree. I think if you're looking for the year where the competition basically demands that um, that the Diane Warren song win, it you look at 2001 and the year she wrote There You'll Be for Pearl Harbor as performed by Faith Hill that lost to the deeply mediocre You've Got a Friend in Me knockoff song from Monsters, Inc. called If I Didn't Have You that was, yes, Randy Newman's first Oscar after a long lifetime of trying. But if we had the foresight to know that he would win again for goddamn Toy Story 3 with an even more of a knockoff song from You've Got a Friend in Me, like, we would have allowed that that song to stay on the shelf where it belonged. The other nominees that year were Paul McCartney's deeply okay song from Vanilla Sky, called Vanilla Sky. The Sting song Until from Kate and Leopold, which again, fine. Uh, and then Enya's May It Be from Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, which God. like is so peculiar. Talk about whale music. Yes. <laughs> like there is your whale music, which like I don't dislike within the context of the film, but like I'm never going to like crank up May It Be like... <laughs> invite all the guys over we're all gonna like tear it up to may it be like no it's not gonna happen but i think there you'll be the uh classic diane warren power ballad in the classic diane warren mold like that is that would have been not only the best of the five nominees that year but like a very representative diane warren song right where it gives you the yes. best of yes. the things like and a hit song and a hit song yeah Anyway. I mean, it probably didn't lose because everybody fucking hated that movie. Well, and rightly so. It's a bad movie. But... I've never seen it. I feel tempted. Oh, it's like, if you have a spare six and a half days, because that's how long it feels, it just, like, goes on and on and on. It's just whatever. Whatever, I say. To loop it back to Meyerowitz stories, yes, because let's. the winner was Randy Newman. Randy Newman's score in this movie is great. Yeah. I think it's better than the Marriage Story score. 
No, it's very, very good. I love it a lot. It's, um, God, you exist to like, uh, just knock down Marriage Story at every, every I, 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 I'll say it again. I like Marriage Story a lot. Uh, but like, it, it just, every time, when I've, I think maybe this is the first time I've seen this movie since Marriage Story. And uh-huh. I just feel like it's doing so much of what that movie wants to do, or at least discuss so much of what that movie wants to discuss way better. Can we very briefly talk about Adam Driver's cameo in this movie where he plays? We can. The only time like Adam Driver has ever been miscast. I don't understand that scene to the point that you always forget that he's in this movie. I totally Cameos in this movie are wild. I don't necessarily feel like that character is enough of a character to judge whether he was miscast or not i think it was like you know it was fun to see adam driver show up i sort of it made me sort of wonder what exactly ben stiller's job is is he in real estate because i don't think he's necessarily in real estate and he's also not necessarily in law he's just sort of like is a money mover sort of and i think the movie is sort of vague about what he does Mm -hmm. purposefully because of that my main some type of handler my main takeaway, because the, the interaction between Stiller and Driver's characters in this movie is he's trying to convince him to do something with the building that he's bought or whatever. And, you know, sure. rent out the bottom floor and live on the two main floors and yada, yada, yada. But my main takeaway is at the end of this scene, Adam Driver hugs Ben Stiller and the the massive frame of... Adam Driver sort of enveloping Ben Stiller into a hug that just sort of (laughs) feels very sort of like, like Adam Driver is a very sort of like broad shouldered, big limbed, like every feature on him is sort of a little oversized. And I was just like, and we little Ben Stiller is subsumed (laughs) into the arms of Adam Driver. And I am not like a wee little person by any stretch. And yet I long to be enveloped in an Adam Driver embrace of that sort of like just one time. You know how that remember the whole Temple Grandin thing where like she invented a thing that essentially made cows uh, more uh, docile or whatever that was like based on the idea of like a hugging machine that like Mm -hmm. that's how I want to feel. Um but with Adam Driver as my hugging machine. Like, I want to... Or you to... want one of those, like, uh, sleeping pillows that are, like, people, but you want it to be Adam Driver? Yes, but it, instead of me but in hugging way. the pillow, uh, hugging pillow Adam Driver, I want to have a pillow Adam Driver hugging me. And really, yes. pillow is the wrong way to, to, to say it, because, like, Adam Driver doesn't seem squishy like a pillow. Like, I want the sort of... um apparatus steadiness the sort of just like the feeling of like i am being protected and consumed on all sides and just sort of just like wrapped up just really wrapped up in the kind of architecture of his limbs yes i understand what you're saying architecture the architecture of his limbs is the of adam driver's limbs (laughs) is the independent spirit award nominated film uh from 1992 starring adam driver yes um that is that is my main takeaway from adam driver in this movie otherwise um yeah like tons of great we talked about the cameos gail rankin one more time i just want to shout out is so good as pam her scene when they like finally see her again and she's like jesus fucking christ these people is amazing amazing 
She's one of those actors who, now that I know who she is from watching Glow and from um, her smell, she'll show up in a bunch of things now. And I'm just like, oh, that was Gail Rankin. All this time, that was Gail Rankin, and I had no idea. Yeah. Good for her. He's weirdly filled with recognizable faces. Truly, every time I've watched this movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, Adam Driver's in this movie. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, and again, that sort of... I think it was Sandler, it might have been Stiller, but I think it was Sandler after this movie, who was like so effusive about Bombach and was just like, anytime he wants to make another movie, I'm there. And I think the way he um, sort of brings his old cast members back, I think speaks really well of him. That like Josh Hamilton is in this movie for like half a second, and he, of course, was the star of Kicking and Screaming, which was Bombach's first movie. That was, you know, sort of a breakthrough for him. Um, Matthew Shear, who plays the sort of like um, the nebbishy lawyer type who like Harold is like really super mean to him, um, is the boyfriend from Mistress America, who I totally loved. Um, we talked about Michael Chernus. We talked about um, Mickey Sumner and uh, wonderful uh, Karen, who's the actress's name, Cindy Chung. Um, just really, I don't know, really fantastic, really wonderful, uh, sort of not necessarily like a repertory company of actors, but like close to it, right? Mm hmm. That's wonderful. Joseph. Yes. We got to talk about Netflix. Oh, I was going to say we got to talk about the Cannes Film Festival, but yeah, let's we'll yeah. sort of talk I mean, about both. Cannes and Netflix is kind of a little bit of the same conversation because this is the Cannes that they took both Meyerowitz and Okja, and when the Netflix logo showed up at the like premiere at right. the Giant Palais, they booed. They got booed, right? Because can the French government is a very um. Like it's in their law, their laws of like exhibition for films, and like I forget what the time period is for till something can go to streaming, but it's I think at one point it was like three years. Um, so ever since there hasn't been in competition, right? I think I don't think there was anything in 2018. I think it made such a stink that no, didn't they like pull Roma because of that? They yeah, that's right. They would have had Roma, right? But because and maybe also the Buster French Scruggs, government has remember. intervened, yeah. it's it will you won't see can movies in competition at can, right? Um, Although wasn't there something that was going to be that at can this year that like they were going can. to sort of fix that and then there was no can film festival can this year Spike Lee was supposed to be the jury president, which meant that the Five Bloods wouldn't have been in competition, right? But there there was some like rumor going around that they would have shown the movie out of competition or like right. in some unofficial capacity they would have shown the movie um so I'm, yeah it's a very uh, tempestuous relationship for them yeah which for- sucks because like netflix was actually just like kind of getting on its feet in terms of like putting out the thing about Netflix original movies beyond even Netflix original television or like episodic uh, content is that it's not a very long history at this point. Like 
uh, Beasts of No Nation was five years ago. That was their first big attempt, and mm-hmm. they got the first like major pushback on like the theatrical versus streaming debate. Um, and like to the point where 2016, they really didn't put anything forward um, for Oscar. Right. And yeah, again, they really this, seemed like they were licking their wounds from the Beast of No Nation thing for a little mm-hmm. good bit. They were really and I think, like regrouping. <laughs> well, and the conversation has evolved so much in this short amount of time that I think people forget that like this can was a huge part of this whole narrative about like yes. Netflix versus theatrical. Um, yes. And what that means for Oscar and all of that debate and like straight on through to another year and a half later where you have these stories of Spielberg trashing Roma because it isn't a theatrical movie, even though they put it in theaters. Yeah. And that's partly how green book won. Well, 2017 also kicks off with, um, uh, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. The Macon Blair movie with Melanie Linsky and Elijah mm-hmm. Wood that won the grand jury prize at Sundance and mm-hmm. was sort of, but and then gets released on Netflix in February or March, like really early on in the year and kind of disappears, like doesn't mm-hmm. really do much of anything. And I think a lot of the critical establishment at the time was just like, what the fuck is the point of Netflix going to these festivals and taking these movies that like people obviously loved and putting them on their streaming service and just sort of doing nothing for them. And they're now all of a sudden a drop in the bucket. And I felt that frustration. Like, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Was never going to be like a little Miss Sunshine style, you know, breakthrough, but it's a really good movie that really deserved to be seen from a lot, by a lot of people. And if a I liked that movie. indie distributor, like an, you know, we say a 24 all the time. Cause they're sort of, you know, they're the recent big success story with that. But like if an indie distributor, theatrical distributor had taken them, maybe they, you know, they would have been remembered a little bit better or differently. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I take the opposite side of that debate and take, look at it from the Netflix side and just be, you know, like in the grand scheme of things, nobody's seeing these movies in theaters either, right? Like their numbers are, small enough that like it's a very very select they have to buy out the theaters or they for some cities they do like netflix movies do play here at my independent theater um but like in new york and la netflix has since bought their own theaters to use exhibition in. right but i mean if if an indie movie that that you know might have gotten bought by netflix if that's released as you know a lionsgate movie or whatever or a you know mm-hmm. an indie film gets released in theaters it plays in you know, the big markets, your sort of like coastal markets in Chicago and Miami or DC or whatever. Um, two very, you know, modest numbers. Generally, very few people see it in theater. If it does get more of a life later on, you know, VOD, Blu-ray, streaming, whatever, it has to sort of like build an audience. It's the very rare indie movie that becomes a splash. So really, it's on critics and on people who write about film to make those movies happen anyway. So why couldn't those critics and film writers make that movie happen from a Netflix release? So Mm -hmm. it does sort of feel like 
if a movie like I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore flops or like disappears, maybe that's not all on the platform. Maybe that's also on the fact that film critics and film writers have a bias against Netflix movies and don't treat those movies like real movies. And I think there is an Ouroboros effect, though, because some of these movies, it ha- people have a hard time getting pitches accepted for these movies because there's no promotion for them. Yeah. So it's like editors also struggle to see the value in something that people aren't already talking about. You know, like things kind of have to catch on on the platform with a wide audience before like critics can do their job about some of these movies. You know, like there has to be a proven interest in some of these smaller movies. And I think it's taken Netflix a long time to learn how to platform these movies correctly. I think this year they're they're starting to get it. I thought... um the- it's definitely evolved since like what Meyerowitz is, where it's like I think some of the frustrations we might have had in 2017 for some of the movies that they had, and even to a certain extent in 2018 um, for other movies that were not Roma. Um, I, I I think that they are. We need to remember that they are a company that was figuring it out for a few years, and yeah. now they've kind of figured some of it out. I think if you look at the way that movies like The Five Bloods and The Old Guard were promoted and were platformed, they're getting better at it. They mm-hmm. are they're treating these movies more like events and they are not every Netflix movie is being treated to the same sort of like middling level of promotion that there are Where major they just releases drop it on a platform right. or like some people who might have been excited about an Okja or a Meyerowitz stories like it doesn't show up on the platform and you have to search for it for well, a few days that's I remember Okja always I had to look problem. for Okja yes that's always been Netflix's problem is that they don't for as much as they talk about how smart their algorithm is and whatever, mm-hmm. they don't make it easy to surface new. It's not always it's not perfect releases. too for like the Okja thing. Like I pretty much only watch Netflix's original content on Netflix. That and like Great British Bake Off and nailed it. Well, right. nailed it, it's original. Um, and so it's like if that's the case, then when you have an original film showing up on there, why are you not shoving it down my throat? You but know? I think the other side of that coin, as I was sort of you know playing devil's advocate for, is I also feel like the people who write about film after Roma and after Irishman and after Marriage Story and after these successes are now treating Netflix movies like more of a real thing and like more of an event. So I do feel Mm -hmm. like there is like a meeting in the middle and I do feel like it's, you know, everything in the whole film publicity release review apparatus kind of has to be working together in order to make these movies feel like movies, like real movies, Mm -hmm. because ultimately it is a very small percentage of the population who sees anything but the biggest movies in theaters and so it's all a matter of like it's not that's not exactly sleight of hand but it's not not sleight of hand in terms of just like it's perception that makes something seem major or not major Mm -hmm. kind of well and my my uh perhaps concern with netflix because they are getting better and they are getting more savvy at it to the point that like 
even in the year we're in, like, it feels like, regardless of COVID and everybody being stuck in their homes, um, or people should stay in their homes, yeah. uh, stop going to bars, everyone. <laughs> um, it feels like those two examples you did of the Five Bloods and the Old Guard, it feels like regardless of COVID, they did a good job of eventizing those movies and yes. they felt like summer movies, yep. right? They, yes. um, regardless of the situation we're in. My concern with Netflix moving forward, especially with Oscar, is that they have to turn all of their movies that they're putting out into huge successes for them to register. Like yeah. last year's the first year that they got two of their movies to like really register with Oscar between Marriage Story and uh The Irishman, right? Yeah. Yes. And like they have a big fall planned, but like I I just I this is where it does feel like a little unfair because it's like I was a huge advocate um, a few years ago for Private Life, right? Yes. Private Life wasn't a huge movie for them, but it was incredibly disturbing. Like, does it have to, like, be met with the level of the Irishman publicity and the Irishman, like, push and the Irishman viewership to, like be deemed a success whereas if it was theatrical it wouldn't like i just don't know if that's going to be fair to some of netflix fall product like their animated films or ma rainey's black bottom or even hillbilly elegy which i'm just like dreading goes down my spine whenever i hear those two words combined together um like I, i just you know it doesn't seem fair to those movies that, like, that's their barometer for success. They have to be huge, you know? I don't disagree, and I think the same—I agree with you very much about Private Life. I think the same could be said about Dolomite Is My Name last year, which I also mm-hmm. thought was, like, a really great movie that ultimately just wasn't a priority. That said, I mean, we've been doing this podcast for, you know, a couple, few years now, and we've— talked a lot about movies that were not Oscar successes, maybe not necessarily on their merits, but because the studio had bigger priorities, right? So, like, mm-hmm. this isn't a thing that is only a Netflix thing. Sure, like, sure. there are good Fox Searchlight movies that get lost in the shuffle because they've got better, bigger fish to fry. There are certainly big studio movies that get lost in the shuffle because their Oscar push is going to X and Y. So, like, it's definitely... And, like, as this podcast also shows, there are big movies that get the push and just aren't very good. Right. You know. Right. But, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. This year's slate of movies, at first glance, doesn't seem to have the sort of, like, heavy hitters that last year had lined up between Irishman and Marriage Story. And uh, remember, Two Popes did very well with Oscar. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of expectation on the laundromat, even though that didn't end up happening. But like Netflix isn't just putting all its eggs in one basket anymore. So this year, we're going to see what they do in terms of uh, the Sorkin movie, Trial of Chicago 7, the... um, uh, the Fincher movie, Mank, about um, uh, Harold Mankiewicz. And I think you might even put 
Rebecca, the Ben Wheatley Rebecca, on that level. At the very least, it's a remake of a Best Picture winner. You don't get those every day. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, like, um, you know, potential craft category uh, nominee and type of things. Ben Wheatley's movies the certainly do movie not. Is absolutely going to get the short shrift on some of this stuff, though. I hope it gets a makeup nomination. What um, is? Sorry, I missed that. The Charlie Kaufman. I'm thinking of ending. Oh things. well, yes, but but, uh, like, but that was always going to be a tough. Not going to play for the Academy. Like, yeah, I'm. I was surprised to see the kind of universal good reviews for it this week. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to go great with the viewers on Netflix, but we will see. If you were to take a guess as to what are going to be the top two Netflix priorities for Oscar season, what do you think they're going to be? Um, I think it's going to be Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher. Um. I think at the very least, though, I think there. I mean, in terms of like what a what Oscars individual are they going to be working for? I think it'll probably be Glenn Close and David Fincher. Um, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they could. I think depending, it's going to be terrible. I think depending on whether the reviews for Hillbilly Elegy are terrible or not, and they very well could be terrible, it's Ron... It could very easily just be Bird Box. The movie could just be Bird Box. It's Ron, it's Ron Howard, who is already a director who is sort of a mixed bag for critics, directing mm-hmm. an adaptation of a book that is, like, I haven't read it, so I can't speak on it, but, like, the knives are out for that. Like, I think that book had a big success and a bigger backlash, and I think they're... Th- like <laughs> they that- could just be very happy to get everybody to watch that movie and like that's that's still a win for them sure you know? i do think very likely i think the big pushes will be trial of the chicago seven and mank with the possibility that if hillbilly elegy gets good enough reviews that they could push that anyway or as you said try to push for a glenn close kind of a thing but at you know, and again, we haven't had festivals yet, and really we're not going like none of these movies have been entered into the film festivals for the fall season, neither Toronto nor uh New York, nor v- I don't even know what's going on with Venice at this point. But like so we're not going to have we're not gonna have what we had last year where two popes and marriage story did so well at the fall festivals that like we got a little, you know, Netflix was able to gauge that and and figure out where to put their eggs in that basket accordingly. Although already, like Marriage Story, they were pushing from a very early stage last year. Mm-hmm. Um, they sat on Marriage Story so they could push it that hard. Yes, um, they knew what they had. I think they knew what they had uh, uh, in their you know the possibility for that. I think we're just it's going to be harder to tell what they have on their hands this year without the fall festivals. And so it's going to be real interesting to me what gets pushed. But at first glance, this feels like a less exciting or less, um, the possibilities for Oscar for Netflix feel less robust this year than they did last year. Well, I mean, it feels broader. It definitely feels like they're working with a lot more and they're going to be able to play their options. The thing about Netflix is if, as if they didn't already have the upper hand because of COVID and streaming and theaters not being um, uh, available or just being very volatile and, you know, the market, people thinking it's unsafe, I think they're unsafe. Um, They also have the upper hand because, like, Mank's coming out in October, Hillbilly Elegy is coming out in November, and the Oscar calendar is pushed. They can really take their time to uh yep uh 
you know, figure out what's working for viewers. I really, I mean, I hope they bring back the five bloods in a real big way because my concern is they have so much coming out in the fall that like they might, I hope that that doesn't get buried. Um, yes. And they actually spend the energy to bring that back into people's minds. Yeah. I think I, yeah, it's, it's a long way to Oscar season at this point. So they're going to have a long time to figure it out. I almost said they're going to have the ability also to sort of release something in early 2021. But Mm -hmm. at this point, I don't know what's finished. Like they have a big slate of, you know, movies that are scheduled vaguely for 2021. And they'll probably release their actual like calendar soon, if not by the time this episode drops, because we're usually like two weeks ahead. But um, but there's like there's a Guillermo del Toro. uh, It's the Pinocchio movie, but still there's a Guillermo del Toro that they've got in there, you know, in their queue. There's a there's a. Jane Campion, there's a Henry Selick, there's just like, there's a Clooney, there's, you know, again, another, none of these things are like slam dunks, but like, I just don't know what is finished or finishable by the end of February, you know? Right. Or how they're measuring it. And like, they don't, pro- here's the other thing about Netflix promotion, because like this week I kept seeing people complaining that there wasn't a Mank trailer or teaser yet. They mm-hmm. don't promote their movies until like, six weeks out of them dropping on the platform even less than that sometimes like it's really yeah, because like they have so much content like they do not do long lead trailers ever ever netflix no. so yeah the longest lead they ever did was for the irishman which is like its whole own beast when yes the oscar ceremony before they had that which showed no footage and had like two lines of audio and a spinning bullet it's you know, so tough was... It's tough to extrapolate anything from what they did for The Irishman because so much of what was done for The Irishman feels like it was mandated by Martin Scorsese wielding wielding every inch of his, you know, Mm -hmm. clout in Hollywood for Netflix to treat his movie like a theatrical movie in every respect. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, I think it succeeded for The Irishman and also maybe like succeeded for Netflix too and that it like it showed Netflix what could be done if they did maybe play the game a little bit more like the studios played it even though I think foundationally and philosophically they're so resistant to playing things like the studios just because they want to be the disruptor and they want to be the new paradigm so much that like Mm -hmm. they'll do it for Scorsese but I really think they'll push back on doing it for say Aaron Sorkin or even David Fincher Ron Howard Right. Well, I mean, Aaron Sorkin, they bought that movie. They didn't develop it. They didn't produce it. So, like, I'm I'm willing to bet that that could be more of a populist uh, thing than an awards play because it wasn't part of their plan initially. Possibly. We'll Although, I mean, it's going to be irresistible be to try to movie. turn that into, like, the political statement of the moment, right? Sure, sure. It'll be interesting. Anyway, anything we also want to say about um, Meyerowitz stories before we move into IMDb game? Uh, Elizabeth Marvell is a national institution. She's incredible in this movie and should have gotten more attention. Uh, It's weird that Sandler only got a Critics' Choice nomination for comedy, but the movie wasn't nominated for comedy. Yeah, that is weird. I'm kind of struck by that. It's like, that's just a key example of, I think, critics not really doing their job or just not responding uh, that strong. 
Did oh, Netflix ever pull out the $42 million, not $42 million, 42 million viewers for this movie? I don't think they did. No, they never this made was in it. in the era where it's like every movie had the same number of viewers they claimed. Yeah, they never made a big viewership claim for this movie. They didn't really tout this movie very much at all, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to mention how much I loved in the movie the way it presented the relative and various um, artistic merits of the characters were like, you see that Danny is talented, but also that, you know, it's this very sort of like low key talent. So it's not this like hidden genius kind of a thing. And especially in the way it shows Eliza's short films or sort of student films that are the product of a very kind of like young and uh, wannabe uh outrageous kind of mind of an 18 year old but it also she's not like a phony right like she's not this like um she's not a hack you know she's Mm -hmm. you can tell she probably does have talent and like an artist's impulse but also like this movie is amateur garbage but in a way right. that like feels realistic for an 18-year-old like freshman. Like she has ideas as an 18-year-old yeah. that are like interesting that like she's learning how to manifest them. And Danny being her father is like I think it's brilliant. I think, you know, I've never seen a sex scene filmed this way before. <laughs> like and it's just like and it's very funny because it's so like sexually explicit and watching them all sort of like hovering around the laptop screen watching it is very funny. But also it's just like yeah, she's, you know, a college freshman getting all her big avant-garde college freshman ideas about what if a superhero had a penis and a vagina like this kind of thing and it's just like oh you are exactly you gotta the kind get of, some of this out of your system you're, you're exactly the kind of person you should be at this age like that's yes. you know yes. i really liked that i almost wondered and i don't know how i feel about this if that was like where some of the like uh, inspiration of Greta Gerwig shows up in this movie because, Maybe. like, let's not forget she started in mumblecore movies. Totally, yeah. Um, I also want to Ben Stiller in this year. Like, I kind of wrap these two performances up because, like, this was really the fall of me being like, "Wow, Ben Stiller." Um, it's also the same year as Brad Status, which he I was going to mention this. That movie. He's phenomenal um, in Brad Status. He was on my ballot that Me year too. for Brad Status. Mike um, White's Brad Status is such an underrated movie because it, you think it's going to be one kind of a movie and it really undercuts that the kind mm-hmm. of movie that you think it's going to be. You think it's going to be this sort of like middle age, you know, Gen X uh, kind of wail into the darkness about, you know, what is my life and and I don't understand millennials. It's so and all sad this. to be a forty year old man. Right. But really it's a movie that is about, you know what, actually no it's not. Um your life is fine. Um Well and it challenges him to sort of like see outside of himself in some ways. Mm-hmm. And, and does it in a way that's really um I think generous and kind. <laughs> was this also the the but year not, like pulling punches. I think it does like you know, it's not playing softball. Was this the same year as Beatrice at dinner? Yes. So, oh, like, God, Mike White nailed movie. this year. Like, Mike White had such a great year this year. Meyerowitz is also a movie that gets how funny it is to watch people who don't normally run, run. Um, just all the little, like, the ways in which he films Dustin Hoffman's character 
um, sort of like trotting along, trying to catch up to something or like running away from something is very funny. And there's the scene where Jean sort of runs out of the parking lot to the woods and Matthew just goes, I've never seen Jean run before. And Danny goes, yeah, that's what she looks like when she's running. <laughs> it's so funny. I loved it. I'm also, in general, just a huge sucker for movies that f- that center sibling relationships. And this is such a good one. Mm-hmm. It's such a good I one. I agree. I love it. I mean, I, I'm always like, a, uh, same as you, I am a sucker for movies that have like extended family relationships or things that are outside of the like nuclear relationship but are still family like i i love a lot of iris sax's movies for this um as well and like as someone who is not like everyone is 100 percent a biological relationship to me or it's like all, right you know like i said my siblings are like technically half siblings and i've had step siblings and it's like it's it's yeah. really um its own thing in a way that's not really ever spelled out in a way that the meyerowitz stories does yeah i agree it's we like how in Mistress movie. America, they're sisters, but not sisters. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, they're going to be sisters, and then they're not going to be sisters. But there's, you know, I love it. I want to go watch Mistress America now. Maybe I will. Maybe I will today. You should. It's a quick watch. Joseph, should we move into the IMDb game? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Why don't you tell our listeners, new and old, what the IMDb game is? Sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free for all of hints and a uh, a a MoMA show full of video installations is what mm-hmm. it will become. Rebecca Miller's Hi, really good in this movie, too, I have to say. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyway. Indeed. Also, Judd Hirsch. I don't think we ever mentioned Judd Hirsch. Yeah. That's another character who you think is going to be the villain and ends up just sort of, like, being a guy who you can see why, you know, Harold would be frustrated by his success. But he's mm-hmm. not, like, a bad guy. He's just doing his own thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Would you like to give her guess first? Why don't I give first? I don't think okay. I've given first in a while. I have no basis Do you for saying have that. For me. All right. So Noah Baumbach, throughout his uh, storied career, has not only directed films that he's written, but he's co-written films that he has not directed. Two of them being uh, with Wes Anderson. He co-wrote Fantastic Mr. Fox with Wes Anderson, and he got an Oscar nomination. Is that right for co-writing The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou? Am I making that up? No. Well, he should have. Steve Zissou no. has uh, no nomination. No nomination. Nominated for anything. Right. Why did I think we that? We could uh, cover it on this podcast. Anyway. Um, right. His Oscar nominations are for Squid and the Whale and for Marriage Story. What a dumb thing for me to think of that he was yeah, Oscar nominated. Yeah, he Life actually Aquatic. had a wide gap between Oscar nominations. He did. He did. Anyway, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is a movie that he wrote the screenplay for. One of the stars of that movie, although not in a very big role, is Angelica Houston. And somehow we have never done an IMDb game for Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston, my birthday twin. Really? Congratulations. That's a great one. Yeah. I am always happy to have a cool one. Uh, okay, so Angelica Houston, uh, gotta say the Adams Family. Yes, the Adams Family. Um, 
probably the witches. The witches, very the good. Witches Seems to be currently remade. back on Netflix. Watch it. It is still a time. Yes. What of her Oscar movies do I think is on there? I'm gonna say, well, it's probably her win, so Pritzi's Honor. Incorrect, not Pritzi's Honor. Mm. I might have to come back to this because, I mean, The Grifters is kind of, it has huge fans, but like Enemies of Love Story is probably not there. What was her other nomination? Um, Something. Is it not just the three? I think it's just the three. No, I think she has four. Nope, it's just the three. Thinking of I don't um, know. Royal Tenenbaums. Incorrect. That's two strikes. Now you're going to get years. Mm. Your years are 1990 and 1998. I don't like this. I should have got it perfectly. Um, uh, is 1990 the Grifters? It then? is the Grifters. Yes, That's Oscar nominated for the Grifters. I mean, maybe is she top build or is Cusack top build in that? Um, technically, according to the poster, it is Cusack, Houston, and Benning, but it's the three of them. And it's one of those posters where the names are side by side, but do not, um, strictly speaking, correspond with the actors. So on the poster, it's Houston, then Cusack, then Benning, uh, left to right, but it's Cusack, then Houston, then Benning, left to right in the billing. So she got a lead actress nomination for it, though. Yes. That I knew. Yeah. Okay. I think this... Oh, wait. What was the year? 1998. That's got to be Ever After. Ever yes. After showed up for Drew Barrymore and someone else, I think, previously. Really? That's amazing that you remember that. Yes, Ever After, I'm a Cinderella sure. story, a movie that is way weirder than you remember it. And if you have a chance to go watch it again, I would suggest Fabulous. doing so. It's weird. It's fun. I, if I didn't have the year, my other guess would have probably been 50-50, because 50-50 has weirdly shown up for other people. Yes. Didn't it show up for, like, Anna Kendrick? Yes, I think that's right. Ugh, interesting. Anyway, I went back in the Bombac filmography as well, went back to his first nomination for The Squid and the Whale, who is a performer we sometimes forget is in Squid and the Whale... But Miss Anna Paquin. Oh, I thought you were going to pull Billy Baldwin out on me. Yes, Miss Anna Paquin. No, not Billy Baldwin. I'm not. I'm not being that cruel to you. Anna no Paquin. No voiceover work. Anna Paquin during her uh, only exclusively playing jailbait college students era. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, Anna Paquin. No TV, meaning no True Blood. That is interesting. Okay. I think true. Here's the thing about TV and IMDb is known for, I feel like if it is a show that stays good and stays beloved in its whole run, yeah. it will show up. That is my theory about TV. Yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, I'm going to put a pin in my decision as to which X-Men movie to guess for her, whether it's the first or the second, and truly chaotic if it's the third. Um, I'm going to start with the piano. The piano? Correct. Her Oscar win. Her Oscar win. I was win. joking if I was going to do Halloween this year, I would dress up as Anna Paquin winning her Oscar. <laughs> With that hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That hat and that vest, honey. The thing about Anna Paquin is she will show up for an ensemble. Like, she will. Mm-hmm. And whether IMTB will recognize that or not, 
I'm gonna guess almost famous. No. Okay. All right. So now with one strike, I'm gonna need to delve into the X Men of it all. I'm gonna say the first X Men. Yes, X Men. Okay. Almost famous weirdly does not show up for a lot of people on their. Known it should, form. but you're right. It doesn't. Um. All right. Let's see. X Men Two. Yes, I thought that would trip you up. X-Men 2. All right. Okay, so that's three of the four. It's almost certainly not this, but it is her one big lead role, so I'm going to say Margaret. No, unfortunately, Margaret. Masterpiece. Too small. Brilliant in it. Yeah. Not on there. Your year is 2005. Okay. So, (laughs) let's quit in the whale. It is squid in the whale. I hate that that's how it came out because you think that I'm doing this to you and I am not doing this intentionally. It's, okay, first of all, you're not not doing it intentionally, but also she has such a small role in that movie. That's so funny. I don't know, man. It's on Criterion Channel. Maybe yeah. people are looking it up. I don't know. All right. Well done. Anna Paquin would be great in another Noah Baumbach movie. I Just know. throwing that out there. Do another one. Yes, exactly. All right. Joseph, yes. I think that's our episode. Nice. Our episode, parenthetical, finished and enjoyed. Yes. Exactly. Uh, if you want more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this head Oscar buzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore bud. Buzz. Bud. <laughs> had Oscar bud. Uh, but that's our that's our what? weed uh, offshoot podcast. Uh, yes. If you want to um, smoke weed and talk about the Oscars. Yeah. Um, and who doesn't? would listen uh joseph where can the listeners find you and yourself i'm on twitter at joe reed reed is spelled r-e-i-d i'm on letterboxd as uh joe reed spelled the exact same way i'm also on twitter at chris v file f-e-i-l also on letterboxd under the same name we would like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork dave gonzalez and gavin mevius for their technical guidance y'all please please remember to rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google play stitcher wherever else you get your podcasts a five-star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so please let us uh oh fuck i didn't even mention this but the ending joke is that i love that the opening scene has uh iconic rupaul's or non-iconic rupaul's drag race uh lip sync song head to toe yes lisa lisa <laughs> and cult jam it's such a great yeah. intro to the film it's that anyway uh maybe it'll be the outro to the episode but please uh love us from head to toe in song or otherwise yes it's all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz bye, bye.